Amen. Let's pray. So God, we ask that you now come and show up in the midst of us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would speak a good word to us and that in hearing that word, we might perceive what you have to say and not just perceive, but maybe even come to believe it so that we could live accordingly, that we could be transformed uh, into the image of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray saying, amen. Hey, so our, verse, our verses this morning, our passage, comes from John chapter 21, verses 3 through 14. I'd like to read it with you. Uh, you can follow along um, in your Bibles or up on the screen. <clears throat> Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but, the, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So let's set the scene here. It's weeks removed from the resurrection. The disciples have just spent three years wandering Palestine with Jesus watching him, talking with him, sharing life with him, seeing all the different miracles that he had performed. And then he was taken and betrayed and given up to execution. And then, unbelievably, raised from the dead. Now, he's already appeared to them two times in separate occurrences in the Gospel of John. And there they are sitting around waiting for... He said, he said, I will meet with you in Galilee. Most of John's account has been centered in, centered in Jerusalem, but now they're going to go and meet up with Jesus, uh, the, re, the raised Jesus, somewhere in, the, in Galilee. And you get this sense in which they're sitting around and Peter is just tired of waiting, right? He's like a man of action, so he wants to do something. And he decides, hey, I'm going fishing. Who's coming with me? And so they, a group of them, about seven, six others, seven of them in total, go with him to the Sea of Tiberias. And there they do what they know how to do, and that's fish. They spend the whole night fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, but it's a fruitless experience. They're not able to find any fish. And so at the end of the, their time and their work, they're headed back to the shore, and there they see a lone figure out there, and that lone figure calls to them, lads, what are you up to? Have you found any fish? And they say, no, we haven't, dejectedly. And he says, well, throw your nets on the other side, and there you will find some. Now, they, obviously, they're, you, I mean, imagine what they're thinking. Yeah, throw our nets on the other side, because 
the other one side doesn't work, but they do, and lo and behold, they get a catch that they cannot imagine, 153 fish. This wakes them up. It opens their eyes. They begin to see the world a little bit differently, and, and it's the disciple that Jesus loved that recognizes him for who he is, Jesus, this lone figure. He says, it's the Lord. Now, Peter, obviously, a man of action, hears this and immediately uh, jumps into the water, only pausing to put on clothes, which we're really grateful for, right? And he jumps in and he swims to the shore and races the boat <laughs> on his way in, right? And there he encounters Jesus and Jesus says, go back and get the fish and bring it. I've set breakfast for you. Now, I understand what's going on with Peter in this scenario, right? For I imagine he has just, he's just coming off this traumatic events where he watched probably his closest friend and, and teacher killed. And then this, these extraordinary events in which Jesus is raised and appears to him. And he's sitting around twiddling his thumb and he's like, what am I going to do? And so in the midst of all this extraordinary phenomenon going around, he turns to the ordinary and he goes back to what he knows, right? But I wonder what Jesus is doing in this scenario. For Jesus is standing there on the shore and he says to Peter, hey guys, what, have you found anything? Throw the nets on the other side. What's he trying to teach them? Maybe he's trying to teach them something or show them something that he's already taught for them. For earlier on, he has said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And now he's not just telling them, he's showing them this. He says, throw your nets on the other side and fish but you're going to fish differently than you ever have before. And we know from other stories in the Gospels that Jesus was calling these disciples to be fishers of people, right? So what's, the, what's, at, what's then this scene that we encounter with Peter rushing to the shore and the disciples falling? They bring their fish um, and, and join Jesus. And what is Jesus wanting to do? This is the last time he's going to interact with them, Right? And what is it, what's, it, what's that meeting place all about? He wants to have breakfast with them. Now, isn't that weird? It makes me ask this question. How does Jesus like his fish? Hold that thought. This uh, last month or two, uh, there's been a group of us gathering here at the sanctuary studying a church history class. We've called it the origins of Christianity. We've been looking at the last four, first 400 years of the birth of the church. And we've been seeing how the church has, how it looked and it was formed and shaped and its practices and its convictions and its life shared together. And the picture in the first couple centuries emerges of a group of people that are dynamic in their life together. They're gathering in groups, in homes, all around metropolitan areas, and they're sharing everything in common. And at the center of their worshiping life together is a meal, a common meal that they share that they called the love feast, where they would break bread and fellowship with one another. And then they would even literally take parts of their meal, the bread that they break, and pass it to other communities in the cities so that they would, as a sign of their united, their unity in Jesus. And it's this participatory worship and, and participation in leadership. And it feels like, like I said, very dynamic in nature. At the same time, it was a church that it was not uh, unfamiliar with persecution. It was a minority faith in the Roman Empire, in the Mediterranean world. 
And every once in a while, there would be, it was actually illegal to be a Christian. And though there was a general policy of don't ask, don't tell, every once in a while, there would be these flare-ups of persecution, outbreaks of pressure that would be brought against the Christian communities to the point where some would be even asked to die for their faith in martyrdom. And that was a major form of their Christian witness uh, to give um, expression, to embody their faith in Jesus, is to give their life in his name. And then something happens. So the church is going along for 200 years some odd years, 250 years, moving into the, the fourth century, the year 300, and, and then something huge happens to shift the face of Christianity from that point on, and that's the conversion of the Emperor Constantine. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with his story, but in brief, here it is. He's engaged in these battles with his brothers and other, other um, compete, competitors for the empire, and he has a purported vision or a dream in which the cross of Jesus appears to him, and he hears words that say, by, the, by this sign you shall conquer. And he goes on to conquer the whole um, um, known world, the, uh, the Roman Empire, and and he, be, he, he shifts his, the, poli, the official policies of Rome, and he turns Christianity from not just um, not being uh, an outcast religion, but now he even favors Christianity. He begins to um, lavish gifts upon Christians and their communities. He even says uh, he uh, makes... Um, he says that Christians are exempt and the churches that they worship in, they're exempt from taxes... Well, that's true to this day for the United States. Um, and, he, and he begins to favor them. And so what, what and this, this event, the Constantinianism, what we call the conversion of Constantine and the favoring of Christianity the empire, changes the way in which Christianity and the church is viewed in society, but it also changes the way in which they viewed themselves and, the, and their, even their practices and their worship. So, to contrast, Christianity moved. Now, at first, I'll just say this. At first, this was a really good thing, right? Because there's so much freedom. No longer are they being persecuted. And there's stability. And there's no longer fear of um, outbreak of uh, the possibility of martyrdom. But it also um, entrenches or institutionalizes, this, uh, institutionalizes their faith. And so no longer do they have to meet in homes together, right? In fact, the, the first church that we have a record of was we found a church from dating from 250 and it was actually a home that had been repurposed reconverted they'd popped the top on it and 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 made it into a worshiping community but no longer do they have to do that and worry about meeting in each other's homes and in catacombs and other places like that in fact what they did is they started building these big beautiful uh, what we would later call cathedrals um, but were called basilicas at the time. And they were modeled after the Roman, uh, the official Roman architecture of the time. And they were lavish and they were ornate and they were beautiful and gorgeous and they exuded power and privilege. Or like the, the leadership of the church, no longer, it, it used to be that leaders would dress in everyday clothes, right? The bishops of the, um, of the communities were not no different than everyone else. But with Constantinianism, uh, it began to creep in that um, the leadership, the priests and the bishops, they would, um, wear, they would put on garments and ornaments. 
that reflected the, official, the Roman officials of the day. And they were beautiful and they were majestic. And they would have long processionals in which they'd come into the service and lead the community in worship. And they had choirs now. And so uh, to fill up these big buildings with song and music. And so you saw a, a shift, not just a subtle shift, but a noticeable shift from a participatory life together to one in which there was a separation between the clergy and what was then being called the laity. And um, worship had a, the tendency to be more performance-oriented and driven. And it, was, and it was all because of the privileged place of Christianity in the empire. Christianity become wedded with power. Now, this had a huge ripple effect in Christ, what would later be called Christendom and that we are struggling with to this day. So much of how we perceive and conceive Christianity is a direct result of the the Constantinianism of the, the fourth century and the conversion of Constantine and the shift from um, Christianity being a marginal religion to a privileged one. And it had an effect even in that day. In fact, what I want to highlight for you this morning is the rise of the monastic movement in the fourth century, in the early parts of the fourth century. For even in that time, people were looking around going, whoa, this is Huge, and I don't know if we like what's going on here. And so what you saw happen is uh, hundreds, even thousands of people in opposition to this shift that, has that had taken place, in protest to it, in reaction to it, they, fl fl um, they flood, the, um, they move into the desert. And there they start to try to live alone in isolation and solitude. In fact, the word monk comes from a Greek word that literally means solitary. And these monks would go into the desert to wrestle with Satan and commune with God. And they wanted to chastise their bodies and reject the lavishness and the ornateness of the Christian expression of faith that was going on in the Roman Empire, and they wanted to move to a more simple and ascetic lifestyle. One of the things that came out of the monastic movement during this time was an, uh, an, um, an emerging appreciation for the sacred in the ordinary. For these individuals who are living in the desert had to take care of themselves, address all their needs by themselves, they lived kind of a hermit life, and so they engaged in all sorts of regular, mundane, ordinary practices to keep their life um, going. And what they found was that there is something extraordinary in the ordinary, that, that God was showing up for them in the midst of their ordinary tasks. And this is a tradition that the, the, where that practicing the presence of God in the ordinary of life that maintained itself all the way into the 16th and 17th centuries, where it's given fullest expression in an individual by the name of Brother Lawrence. Now, here's a little bit of his story. He, he lived in France, and he was, as a young man, conscripted into the military. When he was finally able to get out, he had this... While he was in the military, he had this conversion experience where God shows up to him in a powerful way. And when he finally gets out of the military, he chooses to enroll in the local monastery, one that exists in Paris. And he's assigned a task 
He, his job is to be a kitchen aide where he's scrubbing pots and pans and cleaning up after the mess of the community. And while he's there in that time, he begins to reflect on his task and how to find meaning and to, in fact, glorify and honor God through that work. And he develops these practices that become kind of known around the region. In fact, someone, an, uh, an abbot, shows up to interview the monk and wants to write, and, and through a series of three interviews, writes down kind of his life reflections. And we still, still have them to this day. So I want to share with you a briefly some of what he had to say in a book that was later published after his life called The Practice of the Presence of God. Here, Brother Lawrence reflects, saying, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and they set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. We do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of him and then done, if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I raise happier than a rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up a straw from the ground for the love of God. He does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace and sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for the grace, past and present. He has bestowed on you. And in the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. We ought not to worry of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of our work, but the love with which it is performed. Now, doesn't that strike you and ring true in so many ways, or at least create a longing in you for the possibility that, yes, there really is something extraordinary in the ordinary? I think today, more than any other time, needs to hear this message again. In fact, there are many who are hearing that. There are whole movements. There's even a group called the New, Mon New Monastic Movement, people rejecting the, the hustle and the bustle and turning to more simple life in community together. I was talking with a friend this last week um, over breakfast and he, had, he shared, we were talking about some of these themes and he shared how this realization, the extraordinary in the ordinary, has transformed his own life. And later he wrote to me an email that I asked if I could share parts of with you. And this is someone from our own community. Now hear his words. He says this, my whole life has been centered on being popular, a great athlete, affable, successful businessman, and so on. I became addicted to the world's opinion of me and all the extraordinary things that they thought of me. Yet I was emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. I finally came to the end of myself. I thought I was going to die, and I did. I don't see visions in the traditional sense, but God did breathe into my will that there is a different way. 
We live in an upside down world. My heart needs to be tilted to the opposite or of everything I once believed. This led me to quit my high-powered job, become a stay-at-home dad, and temporarily remove myself from all the affirmation I once got. This was nothing short of death for me. It sucked. I have never been more lonely, angry, and confused in my life, yet something greater than myself encouraged me to continue that on the other side of this death was true life. During this time, I started to intellectually understand what spiritual giants have been saying for centuries. There is so much pleasure and joy in the perceived mundane. Spending hours on end with a baby that can't speak back to me, therefore tell me how great I am, was the greatest gift of my life. During this time, I started to intellectually understand what spiritual, oh, sorry, to start to understand that true life is found in the inconsequential, has become a breakthrough concept for me. I do and will forever crave direct affirmation, but it will never satisfy me. I always want a Coke, whereas only boring water will quench my deepest thirst. I lead a very domesticated life where I wake up each day working, give my daughter prepared and off to school, work again, pick her up from school, assist her with homework, Take her, activity, take her to activities, work again, and put her to bed. Put this on repeat, and this is perceived as a very boring life. And in truth, it is. Yet, when I am spiritually centered, I derive such a sense of calmness, connectedness to my reality, and, a joy, and joy is often a byproduct. A barometer of where I stand or where I'm at spiritually, is whether I really accept this mundane life or am becoming unsatisfied and wishing for a sexier lifestyle. This perspective gets drowned out in our American culture, where success is defined as life working for you, having all these things and keeping up with the Joneses. It isn't so much that we should avoid success in this manner, but we are called to live a loving life, And this, most often, is not the sexiest of existences. However, as we retreat from deriving glory from the earthly, we participate quietly in the heavenly. It truly is quite extraordinary to live an ordinary life in our culture. What I love about Brother Lawrence and my friend and others that are reflecting on this is that there really is so much beauty, even the sacred, in the midst of ordinary life. In fact, that's where life is lived, right? In the ordinary, the day in, day out grind. But what does it look like to bring intentionality to our ordinary existence, to find Jesus in the midst of the ordinary? Back to the early fourth century and the monastic movement. Hundreds fled into the desert to reject the opulence of the current age and to live an ascetic life. And there were two different streams of monastic, uh, streams that came out of this monastic movement at that time. The first was the anchoritic stream. And it comes from the word, uh, the Greek word to withdraw or retire. 
And that was the, that's what the first monks did. They, they were individuals in, who went, moved into the desert in sol, and to live a solitary life, to withdraw from the world and to experience God's presence and to find meaning in the ordinary of life's existence. And there uh, two of the most famous of these monks, Paul and then later Anthony, were memorialized by two great theologians, Jerome and Athanasius of the time. And their witness was so powerful in the stories that were told about them that what we found happening was tons of others flocked to them and wanted to learn from them this way, this alternative way of living. So much so that they, they would constantly push deeper and deeper into the desert to get away from their followers. And eventually they had to throw in the towel. And so what happened was new communities started to form around some of these first Anchoritic um, monks. And so there was a new tradition that came out. It was called the Cenobitic tradition in monastic life. And it comes from two Greek words combined, koinonia and bios, Kenobion, living in community, life in common, shared in fellowship. And what they learned was it was not enough for us to live these solitary lives, but we need models to do this, to live counterculturally. And so we need to live in community where we have this life modeled back to us. And so there was this common commitment to one another to serve each other, everyone in common, regardless of a hierarchy of, of life and um, authority. And they, they, they began to form these communities where they lived out their life together, shared in common, but for the service and the benefit of others. And I look around at today and I say, well, you know, I bet when we hear of the, these two streams of monastic life, the one, the anchoritic one, seems to be a little, more, a little bit more challenging to us. I mean, after all, what, what we get in our mind's eye, these individuals that live this hermit life, kind of like John the Baptist with big beards and eating locusts in the desert, and we say, oh, I could never do something like that, right? And that seems so strange and foreign to us. But I would argue that it's the Cenobitic tradition that may be more challenging to the way we live as modern people. Life lived in community, shared in common, intentionally seeking the benefit of others with Jesus at the center. We love to talk about community, right? But our experiences is when it starts to impact and influence the decisions, our individual choices that we want to make, then it becomes a lot more difficult. For the image of the modern person is the individual person who is living life juggling all our different responsibilities and decisions from family and church, from work and leisure, from caring for kids to managing our finances again and again. We're just spinning out of control trying to keep everything afloat, right? And eventually we feel overwhelmed with that. So with that, we drop some of our responsibilities and decisions. And church is just one of those things that we often drop, right? Because we tend to define church as those Sunday meetings or other meetings that happen throughout the week. And we see church as extraordinary, extra, bigger, the show, the life, the worship, but not ingrained in our daily existence. And so it's something that we drop. And I would like to suggest that there's another way, another paradigm for viewing life. 
And it's not to see ourselves as individual persons, right? But to see ourselves as persons in community, not unlike how God is. Three persons in fellowship, one God, right? And it, at those, to live our life as persons in community, then maybe the paradigm is less of our juggling our responsibilities, but to see our, our responsibilities and our decisions as spokes on a wheel with our life shared in common together at the center of that wheel. And so then the community in which we live and which we model back to one another, Christ-like lifeness, right, becomes a resource rather than another obligation. And it becomes a means to help us navigate all our different responsibilities and our choices and our decisions and the various pressures that come into our life. And so we begin to live a more integrated life, sharing with one another in common, dynamically gathering together throughout our neighborhood, in our homes, throughout the city. I have to say this, that this, what we're doing here this morning, it is good, but it's not necessary. Me preaching to you, I hope, is good, but it's not necessary. All of what we do as kind of a structured institutional life as the, at the sanctuary from Peter and Francis and Michael and myself and the other staff, Angie downstairs, and the support staff, and the, the gathered time today, all of that is in the service of what is really ne necessary. And that is for us together living out our Christian life in community with one another, meeting in one another ho another ho another's homes, bringing worship, to God, giving worship, making our lives a very, our very lives worshipful to him and to seek the benefit of others and to give expression of his life, to witness to who he is in the world. That's what's necessary. And you know what? It doesn't look very flashy, does it? There's not that, um, it's not quite that extraordinary. It seems and feels actually very ordinary, and yet I wonder if that's just ver the very way that Jesus likes to meet with us. After all, let's return back to the story in John, the last meeting Jesus has before he leaves, right? This is the last time he gathers with them. What does he do? What does, it, like, what does he want to do? He wants to have breakfast with them, right? So, like, they've been spending three years together, wandering the land, engaged in all this extraordinary ministry, right? And yet I wonder what was more impactful for them, that community, that first community. Could it have been just seeing the rhythms and patterns of Jesus' own life in the day in, day out, how he communed with his father? For they asked him, would you teach us how to pray, or to pray like you? to watch him as he would put things on hold on, on his way to do a, perform a big miracle and listen to a woman's story. They watched him as he got away from all the busyness. And they watched him as he engaged in love for others and he had tons of meals with people. And they sought to, see, they sought to pattern their life after him, their paradigm for thinking and feeling and acting. I think it was transformative to watch Jesus live out his life in the ordinary. 
So how does Jesus like his fish? He likes it with you. He, li he wants to meet with you. He wants to show up in the ordinary places of life and to commune with you and to get his life into you. And he does that through our life shared together in the ordinary places. And you know what? He's doing it all the time. That's the good news. He's doing it all the time. So when you prepare chili for this meal downstairs later, I think he took pleasure in how you were caring for other people, taking time out of your life to do just that. When you got your daughter or your son ready for school and you cared for them, even the, and putting your own needs, their needs ahead of your own, I think Jesus is showing up. And when you have opportunities to interact with people in the grocery store or on your way to work or sitting on the bus or grabbing friends together to go watch a Coors, uh, game at Coors Field, right? You can invite me anytime for that. <laughs> there is the possibility for you to see Jesus present in the midst of all those things. For he seems to show up in our midst. He reveals himself to me through you and to you through me. And how extraordinary is it to live life in the ordinary. But to do, you have to do it with intentionality. And need, for it to be transformative, right, you have to be mindful of his presence. You have to be mindful of all the ways when he's showing up, right? Paul says in Romans 8, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Philippians 2, he says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who didn't regard his equality with God as something to be exploited, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, seeking the benefit of others. God is showing up all over the place. And church is not necessarily the big and the fantastic. It's found in the ordinary interactions, the day in, day out routines, our life shared together in common where we seek the benefit of others. And Jesus loves it when we get together around meals. In fact, you remember what he said on the night he was betrayed? He said, oh, I love how I have longed to share this meal with you today. And so he took bread that night and he blessed it. And he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And so every, and he always was doing this, taking bread and giving it to his disciples, just like on the shores of Tiberias. And later he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I think it's striking that the way he um, communed with them, them the, the way he fellowshiped with them, the signs and symbols of his life imparted to them were just like ordinary bread and wine. Life lived in the ordinary, but with intentionality. So you're invited to participate in his life this morning, to come forward, take off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Uh, light cups are juice, dark cups are wine. And as you take him in, Meet him there. Be aware of he's already showed up. He's already made breakfast for you. What he has to give, 
the meal that he's going to have with you, he's providing everything already. And that's good news. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come to the table. Let's have breakfast. opportunity that's being put before us, that we get to live and share life in common. And in doing that, model to each other what it looks like to live that life in the ordinary and to see Jesus showing up in the midst of all of it. In fact, he already is, and that's the good news. He's already invited you to breakfast, right? And so like what we do here, like whether it's the banquet meal afterwards, that's an opportunity. And our house gatherings that we have, those are opportunities to live together. And meeting together in classrooms, absolutely. But even more than that, wouldn't it be great if we just started spontaneously doing it? Sharing life in that way? And so as you go from this place, go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Would you go in peace and find life and the extraordinary life that is in the ordinary? Amen?